Hi, Jed. Uh, welcome to Network Capital. Thrilled to host you on our podcast today. You've uh, you've had an interesting career. You know, you went to INSEAD and thereafter started doing even more incredible stuff. So tell us a bit about yourself and what do you do today? Yeah, um, Ukash, it's, uh, thanks for having me. It's uh, really great to like reconnect after all of these years. Um, but uh, I think the story going back to INSEAD, you know, after I, I, I did the MBA with some like pretty specific goals in mind, I was one of those people that wanted to make that crazy triple switch, right, from function from industry and, and geography. Um, you know, I can't say that I, I switched all of those things at one time, but it's been a series of steps. But um, seven years on from INSEAD, uh, where I find myself is that I found a niche in being a venture builder, right? So uh, I built a few technology businesses uh, within corporate environments. Um, and my latest uh, venture has been an API marketplace uh, being based uh, out in Tokyo. This is something that I started about three, three plus years ago. Um, and through some growth hacking and some smart deal making, we grew this platform to become the world's largest API marketplace. Um, That's incredible. Yeah, thank you. Uh, we can like jump into that more, uh, but just to round out the story, the other part of what I do is that I've been an angel investor for the last four years. Um, I very quickly got my first exit in the first two years. Uh, and I have another company in my portfolio that, you know, has grown from a C to series B company in 18 mm -hmm. months. Um, and I think I have my first unicorn in my hands, fingers crossed. Um, and I've now doubled, that, doubled down on this um, in 2020 by starting to organize my own syndicates. So this mm -hmm. is a way for me to share my deal flow with um, other investors who are interested and they co-invest alongside with me. Um, and I've now just very recently launched a new initiative I call Angel School. So it's angel-school.co. And this is the next chapter for me. Wow. So clearly life after NCR has treated you with uh, loads of adventures and congratulations on all the success. Tell us a bit about your, uh, your life pre-NCR and what were the goals uh, that you came to NCR with and how did, if uh, any way, did NCR help you achieve some of those goals? Sure. So prior to NCR, believe it or not, I was working in oil and gas in supply chain management. Um, based out of Singapore. And, and to be honest, I was desperately bored with, with it, right? Um, yeah. I also saw firsthand for myself how, honestly, I think dysfunctional um, the industry can be in terms of like supply and demand imbalances. Um, and, and my thesis for the world going forward was that this would be an industry that would be in, in sharp decline during our lifetimes, our, our professional lifetimes. Mm -hmm. And it didn't make sense for me to um, stay with the boat, right? And, and part of going to INSEAD was, um, was to make a, a pretty dramatic shift in, in my career. So nothing that I do now, you know, is even remotely related to 
you know, Your oil and gas. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. And, and I don't really talk about it just because it feels like a past life. Yeah. But how did you make that switch that this seems like the triple switch is not that easy to make? What was your strategy and um, how did you uh, go about achieving those goals? Yeah. Um, I think as with all things, you know, like um, maybe this sounds a, a bit reductive, you know, but everything that we want to achieve comes down to maybe basically three things coming together. Number one, do you have a goal? Number two, do you have a plan? And number three, do you have the persistence to execute and to keep going, right? Mm-hmm. And so for me, the transformation has been as a series of steps, right? So the very first step after INSEAD was uh, I just jumped right into the deep end and tried to have a startup. Uh, I did that in Toronto with um, a couple of INSEAD classmates. You know, we had some track record of success. You know, we had some evidence, um, but it never really took off, right? And, you know, by all, by all measures, you can just call it a, a failure. Mm-hmm. Um, after that, I got a, 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 um, a job, a corporate offer to do corporate strategy uh, for Ericsson, um, which was interesting. Where was that? Uh, that was in Stockholm. Got it. Um, It was like an MBA program that they were recruiting for. And so I went in and did corporate strategy for them. And I got involved in this uh, initiative um, at the C level to build a new cybersecurity business. Mm -hmm. You know, when we passed that idea, uh, I raised my hand to be on the founding team uh, to go build that out. And and that was based in uh, in the US. Right. And, And so... I think that the lesson looking back for me was like, hey, you know, you just got to go for it and like try different things. Um, and to be able to navigate this uncertainty by accepting a certain amount of risk. Uh, as long as each move that I make is, um, let's say, net positive. That's, uh, that's really uh, well explained. It seems like uh, the Ericsson, you became an entrepreneur and you started uh, you know, building out that cybersecurity practice. How did that lead you towards your entrepreneurial ventures? Because you really uh, you know, changed tracks even after NCAD. You started with a startup, then went to Ericsson, and then yeah. you know, started investing, building all of that yourself. Uh, what happened in between? What was the inflection point? Yeah. Um, I think that out of my experience with uh, Ericsson, right, and I'd at that point seen, let's say, both sides of a coin, you know, not to oversimplify things, but I'd seen some parts of the startup world and some parts mm. of, you know, the, the corporate world, All right? And, and you know, um, there are benefits to both. And, you know, and I think truly my, my passion lies with, you know, the startup side of things. Right. And, and so my first foray, you know, I don't think I'm, I'm very good in a, in a structured learning environment. I've never tested well as a student mm-hmm. by any means, but I'm, you know, good at learning by doing right. If I'm, I'm yeah. interested in something. Right. So just purely out of interest, um, I invested my time and capital into um, investing into startups. Right. Um, and I did this through the INSEAD network with um, the Angels Group in, in Silicon Valley. And that was my entry point, um, just as a learning experience. Got it. And what was your ticket size and what is the school all about that you mentioned? Oh, sure. 
So um, let me answer the question a little bit uh, of a different way and, and explain the, the progression, right? Hmm. Um, when I started out as an angel investor around 2016 or so, you know, I was dropping tickets of maybe, let's say, 10 to 20K per, per startup on, you know, on each deal that I did. Right? Hmm. Um, you know, and of course, you know, unless you're sitting on a, on a big trust fund or you're independently wealthy already, those numbers do get, uh, they start adding up. Hmm. And I always had this idea of, okay, well, once you figure out and learn something, like how do you systemize, systematize and, and scale it, right? And operationalize mm-hmm. things. Right. Um, for me, I, that's, I saw syndicates as the way to do it, right? Because, you know, um, with syndicates, you know, you're looking at a whole bunch of deals in the end, picking, you know, very specific bets and having a thesis of why these companies could be successful, at least for myself. Um, and it's not that much more work to basically expose that to other investors who are interested in these deals, right? And so this is something that I started doing in 2020. Uh, I ran my first syndicate in um, the middle of the year, around May or June. And honestly, the reception has been far greater than I expected because I'm Mm. now sitting eight months in of starting this journey and I've deployed $2 million of capital, right? Purely as a side hustle, right? So let's annualize that and say, you know, deploying $3 million a year as a side hustle, which is like, it starts to get very interesting. It Um, does. Yeah. And so, you know, the question for me was, okay, how do I scale this up some more, hmm. right? And that's partly the idea behind, you know, there are two sides to it, right? One is, hey, it's, it's a fellowship program. I'm going to give a select bunch of fellows specific real-life hands-on experience on angel investing by being part of my investment committee. It's, it's really hmm. learning by doing. And so I can help accelerate their pathway to do whatever I want, uh, whatever I'm doing in, let's say, 12 months instead of taking four years. And they can go off and uh, invest in whatever drives them. It could be, you know, blockchain in Europe. It can be social commerce in India. Whatever it is that drives you, these are probably things that I'll never touch because, you know, it's out of my expertise. My goal mm-hmm. is to give the program fellows the tool set to do this. Got it. But from my perspective, you know, um, you can think of it as a scaling mechanism. You know, I, I, when I look at your career, it seems that uh, all of these interesting projects fit together. The angel school, the investing that you do, the venture building that you've done. Um, so it all seems like uh, missing pieces of a jigsaw puzzle coming together. Let's, uh, let's dive into each of them one at a time. Talk to us about the API marketplace that you built. Um, what was the old, old process like? And uh, what were some key lessons that you have to share when you built and scaled that venture? Sure. Um, let me take a step back and, and talk about API businesses, right? Just as a background sure. for people who might be listening and maybe aren't that familiar. So API stands for Application Programming Interface. So this is just a very fancy way of saying computer systems talking to each other. Mm-hmm. Right? 
Now, in the last 10 years, a few very interesting happened um, around this technology of APIs, even, even though they've existed for about close to 30 years. Okay? But in the All last right. 10 years, the industry engineers um, largely adopted a common framework for designing and using APIs, something called REST, R-E-S-T. Now that's important because now everybody has a common language to, to use this technology, right? Everybody accepts it. And if you know anything about software engineers, there aren't many times where they all largely agree on something, <laughs> right? So, so we, have, we have that situation. The second one is that APIs have proven to be a good technology for service distribution at scale. Right. So use yeah. correctly, an API can be a way to provide software with very specific functionality. Right. It could be, you know, with your time at Microsoft, you would know they have a suite around computer vision and translation services. And right. all of these things can be done via APIs. If we look on, you know, standalone companies that are built using APIs to sell and move product or service, look at Twilio. Today, they are a $50 billion company from selling mm -hmm. calls and SMS, basically telephony services. They own zero telco infrastructure. They are pure software play, right? So they have a market cap that's like bigger than some of the telcos, right? They basically use software to, to stitch these different, uh, the different infrastructure together, mm. right? And so, but the problem is that if you're building a software application, you have a very long tail of needs. And if you look at the supply side, the, the use cases or the, the API providers do very specific things because they're solving very hard problems, right? So somebody might need, a software developer might need a computer vision API from one API provider. They need to go to Stripe for payment processing. They need to go to Twilio for SMS. Maybe they need translation from Google. They need a PDF parser and the list goes on and on. So the thesis of the API marketplace was, let's go build an aggregator, right? Let's go build an app store for APIs. Basically, that's the idea, right? And my thinking was, hey, if you can do this at scale um, and Twilio as a company just moving SMS, they can be a 30 or $50 billion company and Stripe can be a $100 billion company. This could be something that's insanely valuable. Right. Um, and I think where the story gets really interesting is that... Um, this marketplace, like any marketplace, is a multi-sided business, right? And they're famously yeah. hard to get the feedback loops going between supply and demand. Uh, what I needed was something to kickstart the flywheel, right? This, is, this was my, my growth hack. The growth hack ended up being a partnership that I negotiated with a startup in Silicon Valley called Rapid API. Um, they ended up raising funding from Andreessen Horowitz and also Microsoft Ventures, you know, and I, yeah. you know, the story I've heard is that they actually sat in a room with like Satya, uh, which mm. is awesome, right? And, you know, on the back of this um, investment, they were able to, you know, we were able to grow this platform to become the world's largest API marketplace. 
and you know we could grow it to serve million scale developers wow that must have been phenomenal so um what was your specific role and what were the most uh, uh, important moments of building and scaling this out yeah so my role is that uh, within you know the corporate environment I was working in, um, I was you know leading this initiative. It was something that was completely grassroots, you know, bottom up. I I just undertook, and I could see a pathway to getting the deal done. Right, I mm-hmm. you know it was mm-hmm. just I just had a sense like okay, there's enough here that I could like stitch the dots together. Yeah, um, and so what was really meaningful for me was that. Um, were the specific events where, you know, we signed a deal with with Rapid API, um, and we actually launched the business. My mandate was to go um, build out the platform, the platform's footprint over in APAC, where the company had honestly, you know, not that much uh, awareness at that point. What, if anything, was the contribution of uh, some of the classes that you took at INSEAD? Did they positioned you to do uh, something that you've been not too familiar with in the past uh, life, now do it well. Sure. So if I look back at INSEAD, I mean, I I would have to like specifically call out um, some of like the corporate entrepreneurship classes. Um, I Mm -hmm. think Michelle Rogan in in Fontainebleau taught that. Um, The other one was, um, there was another professor who taught uh, strategy, structure, and incentives. Yeah, Um, as a time, yeah. Yeah, like really intense course, but like superb, right? I mean, that was all about like organizational design and how do you align incentive structures, et cetera. And we also like covered, I think, one module around um, building network effects. So I mean, definitely like drew lessons there and there were also practical learnings that I think you could only learn on the job, right? With my time at Ericsson, it's like learning to navigate in the corporate environment. It's one of those things you just have to learn and experience. It's not intuitive for a lot of people. That is right. And Ajit, so this was clearly going really well. This was a rocket ship by many standards. Um, Why did you decide to uh, focus and do other things uh, as opposed to just being where you were and continuing uh, on this rocket ship? Yeah. Um, Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, maybe partly uh, it's curiosity. Another part is, you know, I have a certain level of like paranoia of of not doing (laughs) enough. Um, And so I'm always, I guess, thinking ahead, right? And and, and planting options, right? Because in the end, I think that is, the, the most probabilistically successful way to navigate, you know, life and career planning is, is kind of like what we encountered during job search graduating from, from India, right? Which yeah. is to say, you want to do as many interviews as possible. You want to have multiple offers and you want them to mature at the same time. So you have maximum leverage because, well, options all have value even if you don't use them, right? Because you can use them to trade off against the other. Yeah. And I think like in that same way um, in life, right? Um, and I'm always thinking I've had like directionally where, what do I want to achieve? And, and you know, based on this, what are the options that I, I should lay down, right? Um, in the end, the way, um, the way I look at things right now is what I want to do is to be 
to have my time um, unencumbered. Yeah. Right. So to be able to maximize the amount of free productive time that I have on my hands to focus on really productive things. Right. Yeah. In order to do that, you need to be financially unencumbered. Right. So what is the pathway to do that? Mm. You know, and, and along the way, of course, you want it to be rather enjoyable. Right. And you narrow all of these things down, you know, then I know the things that are interesting to me are, I like the zero to one of, you know, building a new venture from the ground up. I'm good at the operator side table and I, I like developing that skill set. Um, I like investing in companies because I see it as an effective way to channel capital to productive use. Right. Right. To my mind today, venture is the only asset class where you can systematically generate multiplier returns. I use the word systematically. All right. People, you know, might talk about things like crypto and Bitcoin. I'm not saying this isn't there is there isn't money to be made. I'm saying, you know, what is the systematic play here, right? This is this is my yeah. view. Mm-hmm. And and so, you know, when I look at this, uh, it became very evident that being more involved some way, you know, in the startup community and investing, you know, where those paths intersect, that, that made sense sense for me to lay options down in. I really like this answer. You know, the way you explained um, autonomy, mastery, and purpose, three elements of meaningful work. You touched upon autonomy very clearly. And uh, when you want to be financially unencumbered, so I really love the way you approach this question. And I think all of us have this uh, ambition and curiosity to do more, achieve more, uh, And, you know, heaven knows where that comes from, but it's a useful thing sometimes. So you've built out this marketplace. Things are going really well. And then you decide to repivot your career because you want to challenge yourself and not to have uh, too much regret uh, long term. So how did you decide your next steps? You were interested in, say, venture investing, venture building as an asset class. How did you structure your uh, next steps? and uh, connect the dots to what you do today? Yeah. You know, I, I've this view, Kash, that um, in life, when we are navigating situations of, honestly, like great uncertainty, you, you just need to be directionally correct. You know, yeah. none of us are like really that good that we, you know, with, we can project life, you know, with perfect certainty. I, I don't think that really exists, right? Uh, although we like try to tell that story in like a job interview or something. Um, and, and so for me, I always had this view of, hey, you know, I want to be directionally aligned towards investing and like working with startups, right? And that really in some way was what triggered, you know, my entryway into angel investing, right? Doing that, I think, was a way to um, plant seeds early on. As you know, you'll know as well as I do that the only thing that none of us ever can like buy is time, mm-hmm. right? So the more you can do things in parallel, you know, the more you can advance these things while you've got something else going on, the more it's to your benefit because these end up, you know, um, becoming options or some of them become options for you that you can uh, take advantage of. 
And uh, these options are critical, as you alluded to the fact that uh, optionality has value even we, when we don't exercise them. So you've uh, built out some of that optionality for yourself. Some of these um, deals are coming through. How does one get to invest in a unicorn? Tell us the secrets. Yeah. So I don't know if there is a, a secret formula that you can follow. And if you tick all these boxes, you would, you know, get there. I would say that um, there are specific things that, that I, I look for, right? Um, part of it is I look for companies or ideas that are, let's say, truly brown, groundbreaking. And if successful, mm -hmm. you know, they can open up, you know, multi-billion dollar segments, right? So the case in point, um, a company like Turing is, is the company I alluded to that I think is going to be my breakout unicorn. Mm -hmm. What they do is to provide uh, elite pre-vetted software engineers on demand to tech companies. Yeah. And it solves a real pain point in industry today of basically labor arbitrage. Right. So think about tech centers like Silicon Valley where you know the starting or entry level developer salary might be two or three hundred thousand dollars because all the tech companies are trying to recruit from like 30 miles mm -hmm. you know and and talent and turing has this saying which i really love they say you know talent is universal opportunity is not and and if we're being really honest it, it really is true there's a lot of smart talented people around the world but the problem is access Right. So that's the problem that they want to solve. Um, so I saw that as a huge opportunity. The next thing I looked for was that um, I think they were at the right time where they had several tailwinds moving them forward. Right? Mm -hmm. So if you think about this idea of um, you know, outsourcing uh, of, of software developers, there are plenty of market parallels that tell you you can be a, a huge business. Um, and that's great. Um, what Turing's secret sauce was going to be was that they were going to apply machine learning and data science to massively automate this process. So right. you think about a platform like Upwork today, right? If you ever use Upwork to find a designer or a software developer or a copywriter, you'll know how necessarily tedious it still is, even though by all standards, Upwork serves a market need very, very well. Yeah. Um, and I thought with Turing's focus solely on software engineers, um, and if you, that gives them a chance to be very specific in a niche that's big enough. Um, and if you automate that all the way, you just get the huge like scalability effect. Right? So you can go really big and solve a lot of these problems. And the last point I make was, is that, or let's say I'll make two points. One is that in terms of tailwinds, tiering was per positioned in a, in a really right, the right way in that we see tech companies being, having fully remote and distributed teams, right? Because the first time in history, technology is good enough, right? You've got these collaboration software, you've got Zoom, whatever it is to, to enable this. And not only are these tech companies adopting it, but we've seen in examples like Zapier and GitLab that, hey, you can be hugely valuable. You can be a billion dollar company being a remote 
uh, having a fully distributed team. Yeah. You know, and the last point was, I just like really love the founders, like Vijay and Jonathan, the founders. Um, I can't say good enough about them, right? I, I'm, I'm an advisor to the company, but honestly, they need very little help from me, which just is a testament to how good they are. Um, and I think on the back of these things, you know, it drove um, my investment decision in the company. Got it. How did, uh, how does one, uh, thanks so much for clarifying and uh, sharing such clear mental models for investing. But uh, one challenge is that some of these companies have way too many people willing to invest. So how does one get access to uh, prospective unicorns? How did you get access to them? How did you tap into the network? How does one decide how much to invest? Could you shed some light on that? Yeah, um, absolutely. So I think... Um, if you're starting out as an angel investor, you know, writing out, writing fairly small checks, right? You're not an established fund. You don't have a, a big pool of capital that you're sitting on. Um, the only thing that you can do is to honestly just go early stage, right? This is when your $25,000 of capital, whatever that amount is, is kind of meaningful that you have a chance of the company taking it, right? Um, the second thing is network is really important. Right. In the end, you know, why a lot of, you know, the value that you bring through network capital is probably the, the same, has the same uh, foundations around. It. it does. Yeah. Right. You know, network gives you credibility. So if you like a company, you know, do you have enough clout? Do people respect you enough that if you ask for a warm intro to somebody, you know, that they would walk you into the door? Would they do that for you? Right. I mean, yeah. those things really matter. Um, I guess the third lever you could pull is to like join somebody else's syndicate. I, I mean, you know, I love my own syndicate, but you know, I'm not here to plug my own syndicate, right? There are a lot of other great investors out there. And, you know, this can be a way for you to get into um, a company that might uh, otherwise be inaccessible, right? Because yeah. they might require you to write a 50K check at a minimum, and it's beyond your threshold. Understood. Yeah. So tell us uh, how you went about it. Which year did you invest in this potentially breakout investment of yours? And uh, at what level did you get to get in? And what advice do you have uh, for people to tap into specific networks? So tell us your story and then connect it to uh, your syndicate that you've built today. And sure. then we'll discuss the angel school towards sure. the end. Yeah. So... Um, I think with, um, you know, in this specific case, I, I scout all the time for uh, companies that I look for, right? So some easy things to do, like, look, there are plenty of, there's plenty of information and resources out there today. All the best accelerators would have demo days, right? And yeah. all of these demo days have recordings. Like, it's not that much of a leap for somebody to invest the time and effort and to be disciplined about attending these demo days or watching a recording. Okay. Um, also cultivated my own sources of deal flow. These are other investors that, you know, um, that, that co-invest or invest in the same sort of sectors that I do. And, and we sort of um, trade deals around, right? And this can be a good way of information sharing um, and, and getting access. Uh, in Turing's case, 
in Turing's case, it was a, a pure cold call. Um, I saw their demo day video when they were graduating out of Stanford Startix Accelerator. Um, I saw the three minute pitch. I liked it a lot, you know, and I, I did a cold outreach to them. Right. And I said, hey, you know, I'd love to talk, you know, here's a bit about me and, and, and why, you know, you should consider me. Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in the end, uh, it, it all worked out. I was early enough in, in the process where, you know, um, and we liked each other enough that there was a deal to be done. That's phenomenal. Um, and your syndicate, what's the thesis like? How do you scout at scale and uh, how can others become part of your syndicate? Sure. And why should they choose you? Yeah. Um, yeah. Great questions. Um, <laughs> so what I focus on is um, I focus on seed, late seed to series A companies. Uh, and my sectors that I focus on are enterprise software, SaaS, deep tech, and anything APIs. Got it. Uh, generally, it's broadly a software sector. Uh, I don't like capital intensive businesses. I don't like hardware businesses. I don't like businesses with a lot of regulatory risk, you know, like, you know, med tech or biotech, stuff like that. And it's, it's out of my sphere. Mm-hmm. Um, to be part of my syndicate, um, you can go to angel-school.co. There's a sign up form and, you know, you fill that out and then you get access to, to my deal flow via my, my newsletter, my mailing list. Right. That's um, epic. No, thank you. Um, I figured out like my own system for this. Um, and why I think uh, my investments, you know, or, or why my model works is that um, here's a few things, right? One, with a syndicate investment, it is unlike a traditional fund where you park a bunch of capital and they deploy it for you, right? And mm-hmm. you get investor updates. That's more or less the deal. Yeah. With syndicates, um, investors are going in on a deal-by-deal basis, right? So they get to pick and choose the companies that they like to invest in. And if they don't, they can walk away. No harm done, right? My, my, my mailing list is big enough that, you know, I can fill the allocations. That's not an issue. Um, why you should choose me? Um, I would say that two reasons, right? One is, um, I have deep conviction in all the companies that I back. So in a lot of cases, before the syndicate make or before a deal makes it to the syndicate, um, I've invested in the company, you know, maybe one and a half or two years earlier. Early. So I've taken on that risk much earlier on because I, you know, believe in a company and, you know, my belief or my thesis has been correct up to this point, right? That's how they make it to the next level. Uh, and the second point for my investors is uh, I promise a maximum alignment of interest, right? So going back to strategy, structure, and incentives. Yeah. What that means uh, tangibly is that for my syndicates, I basically make no money up front. Okay. Mm-hmm. So whatever we take up front goes towards covering a hard cost of my diligence process of setting up the legal structures, the SPVs. We minimize that in order to maximize capital deployment. And if the company is successful, I take 20% carried interest, which is a fancy way to say 20% of profit mm-hmm. uh, upon an exit event. Right. Got it. 
So take a simple example. Let's say um, I deploy um, a quarter million dollars through my syndicate, or let's just for simplicity, let's say half a million dollars through my syndicate. Um, and let's say that the company we invested in make an 11x return. Mm-hmm. So 500,000 becomes 5.5 million. This basically yeah. means um, half, sorry, uh, this means that there's $5 million of profit. And so we apply the 20% carried on interest on that, right? So that's a simplistic example, but that's the basic math. Got right? it. My goal is to like take your investment, turn it into that multiplier and cash that out, right? You know, Super. I make nothing up front. I don't take a broker's fee or a kickback from the company, none of that. Right. So it's a, it's a very clean model and, you know, uh, again, alignment of incentives. Do you have a geographical focus or you invest all around the world? And what are the legal and regulatory things one should be aware of before joining your syndicate? Sure. So uh, I only invest into, into U.S. companies. Uh, and that's not to say uh, I don't believe in entrepreneurs or com- uh, founders in other countries. This is mainly a practical matter. Uh, today, my on my investor network, I would say 80% of them are outside of the US, which basically means that um, they would look at the deals in the US and they would be willing to do the paperwork, etc. Um, but you know, it's very hard to compel that for another geography where they're not familiar with. Understood. No, that's uh, that's an important point. Like uh, I, I made some early stage investments, uh, you know, Gumroad, Backstage Capital, and at nice. Stealth Mode Company. They're all, um, you know, uh, North America based. So there's definitely you know ease of investing that exists. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us how you divide your day, Jed, because it seems I know you're you're an outdoors person as well. You do a lot more than uh, just work. You have uh, three parallel, really busy projects going on. What does a day in your life look like? And uh, how do you allocate time to all your myriad projects? Um, probably not very well is like the realistic <laughs> answer. I think I just uh, end up taking on too much and then dig myself out of a hole slowly. Um, no, but I mean, jokes aside, um, w- you know, for me, my day, like time is the most precious thing, right? So I want to make sure that it's it's the most productively used. Uh, my work spans, you know, all, all continents and all time zones. So in the end, you know, getting through the day is, is, is pure hustle, which is to mm-hmm. say, like, you know, you stack the day as much as you can. You know, I start first calls typically at 8 a.m., ready to go, you know, and on a long day, they might go to like 9 or 10 and, and if I can be uh, good to myself, you know, in the afternoon and, and take a couple of hours off or something, then I would. Super. So how, where does Angel School fit in? Is that your primary project now? Um, give us a flavor. And the reason we're asking this question is because there are lots of young professionals who are building like a portfolio of careers, like an investor in the morning, a writer by night, uh, a musician in the evening. Now, you're not that extreme, like a lot of your projects are uh, interrelated, but how do you divide your attention? What does context switching look like to you? Yeah. Um, So I guess um, for me, 
um, the main activities uh, when it comes to the deals that I do, that's pretty, uh, I want to say pretty lumpy, right? Mm. Because, you know, whenever I'm setting up a deal, there's a maybe a two or three week sprint where there's a lot of research. There's a lot of um, uh, heavy lifting around getting paperwork together, you know, because I, I, I do all the, the work around preparing a data room and writing an investment memo for all of these companies so that they are investor ready, right? The goal is to do the work up front so that when an investor walks into like a data room, they have 85 or 90% of what they need to basically make a decision on a deal. And I'm just trying to close that last 10%. Mm -hmm. um, so, so that happens. Uh, and then with Angel School, I'm currently recruiting for my first cohort. We haven't mm -hmm. started yet. Um, and I'm still strategizing on how that how, how we would go. Um, I've basically done all of one LinkedIn post in terms of organic marketing. Uh, and I've gotten something like 27 or 28 applicants from 10 different countries applying to the program, which has been phenomenal. Yeah. Um, there's basically one thing that's holding me back right now from kicking off the program, right? Uh, and that is... I have an underrepresented um, female population in the cohort. Mm -hmm. right? uh, I think you'll know that uh, for venture, um, the the gender ratio is pretty biased to start with. You know, it's probably eighty five percent. Unfortunately, it is. Yeah, finger in the air. Um, so I'd like to do a little bit better, and if it's going to take me a, a little bit more time to like find the right candidates to be a uh, female candidates to be part of the program I, i'm willing to accept that you know to a to a degree i think uh, this is arguably uh, my favorite part of uh, you know the many 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 interesting things that you've said um it's so true like uh, gender diversity is critical in venture in entrepreneurship and you're doing active measures um it just speaks very highly of you know the the core values behind angel school Network Capital is, of course, a partner. We'd love to support you, recruit your cohort, and do targeted marketing uh, among lots and lots of folks who might be interesting. Uh, women, for example, are a big component of our investing fellowship. That's our version of uh, the cohort-based classes that young professionals take to learn things like product management, investing, uh, writing, public speaking, et cetera. So the philosophy behind network capital cohort-based courses and angel schools cohort-based courses is very similar. So you obviously have full support from our side. And I love the fact that you're actually trying to share your knowledge at scale. So wish you all the very best for this first cohort. And uh, how have you priced it or how are you uh, defining uh, the selection criteria? Who should come? Um, are there scholarships available? Give us a flavor of that. Sure. So my immediate goals for the first program is, is to basically just beta test, beta test and like stress test the curriculum. Right? Mm -hmm. um, the way I plan to run the program is as a real life investment committee. Right? And you, they're going to be part of my team and they're going to do all the work in order to learn the fundamental building blocks of building and running your own syndicates, right? So there's three yeah. things. Number one is you have your own investment philosophy and sources of deal flow. Number two, you are credible enough uh, and you have, you, you have your first, let's say 100 or 150 investors who are willing to back your deals. Mm -hmm. 
And number three, you understand all the mechanics of what it what is required in order to run the syndicate by yourself. Right? Got it. And I think there is no way to learn except by learning by doing. Reading and attending, you know, one directional courses, it only takes you so far, right? There's going to be yeah. 10,000 things and edge cases you hadn't thought of and, and all of these things, right? So this yeah. is why I believe in that philosophy. Um, I don't intend to charge um, any fees for the first cohort. And if I do in future, fees will never be the thrust of how I make money, right? Again, going back to alignment of interest, I, you know, I believe in this ethos, right? Um, if I charge fees, you know, it's basically a seriousness fee. It helps me cover licenses and software tools and some hard costs that, that I'll incur. Uh, yeah. But in the end, this is going to be a scaling mechanism, right? This is how I go from deploying $3 million a year to, let's say, $10 million a year. And if I'm deploying $10 million a year, that's equivalent of having, let's say, a $50 or $60 million first fund, right? And Utkash, yeah. well, there's a very competitive side of me that says, I want to go raise my own fund just to say that I did it, you know, just for the hell of it. Think about this model of deploying $10 million of capital a year um, and still being, let's say, more unencumbered, right? Rather than being tied to a 12 or 13 year like fun life, which is like, that's all you do. I need something, I need a number bigger than 50 million in order to do that. It's my point. Yeah. Hey, more power to you. Before we conclude, Jed, um, any parting advice for millennials, young professionals who are trying to you know, become venture builders, venture investors, any books they should read, any people they should follow, apart from, of course, joining the Angel School or applying for it. Sure. Um, uh, I'll throw out like some, some key resources, uh, and then I'm gonna also going to offer one piece of advice, whatever that's worth. Okay. Um, key resources, uh, go read Jason Calacanis' book uh, called Angel, very simply titled. Um, mm -hmm. Go attend uh, Techstars uh, Venture Fellows course. It's like a six-week or completely online program. It's free. Uh, it's a great source of learning. Um, and the last, I'm going to leave by, by giving one piece of advice, right, to, to younger professionals who are like earlier in their career. It, it is this. If you are a working professional, you have a steady job, um, you know, you are learning and you are developing. For most of us, the cost of failure or the, the pain of failure is more psychological than it is existential, right? Yeah. Failing at something like screwing up a job interview or trying at a startup for one year and then having it go nowhere, those lessons are more invaluable to you. Um, those learnings are, are more, more to you than the pain that you feel going through it at that time. Right? And those things make you a, a better person. And ultimately, they don't hurt you in a real existential way, like being out of a job, you know, your family's out on the street. It's not that sort of risk, right? So, so bear that in mind and internalize that, factor that into your, your risk-reward calculus. Love it. Thank you so much, Jed. This was a delightful conversation and I can't wait to have you back uh, with us not next for the summer school. Imagine teaching <laughs> angel investing to kids. That'll be fun. Yeah, I appreciate it, Utkash. Thank you for setting this up.